Disclaimer. Please do not email us about the historical inaccuracies we are sure to make. We are not historians. We are idiots. Hi, and welcome to Anachronismo. I'm Max. I'm Kate. Uh, and today we're going to be just doing a little mini-sode. Uh, Jackie and Noel, uh, we had a scheduling conflict, so they'll be back next episode. But this week it's just uh, just the two of us. You're stuck here. Yeah. With us. Um, we have a theme for this mini-sode, which is historical food and drink. A subject near and dear to our hearts. I am going to be talking this week about Louis Pasteur's Revenge Beers. And I'm going to be talking about Obscure Eastern American Edibles. Wink. Oh. It's a pot thing. Is it a pot thing? It's not a pot thing. Okay. So just food then from Eastern America? Yeah. Like what Like what George Washington drank for milk? Or like uh, delicious history cherries? I, I don't think the cherry thing actually happened. Like he drank cherry milk for baby milk? I... That's right, Max. He drank cherry milk. Where's the... Where's the nipple on the cherry? Poor sweet Max. After the accident, he's never been the same. <laughs> Poor sweet Max. Yes, baby. The nipple's on the top. Oh, I thought that was the stem. Uh... And that must same be un- thing. Must be uncomfortable to milk. That's, yeah, baby, yeah. I, just, I still love him, just even though, even after the accident. <laughs> so well, why don't you tell us, uh, why don't you take us away through this historical edible food? Is that your final answer? Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna, gonna stick with that. Okay. So, um, the really interesting thing that I learned about a lot of American foods is that, um... I sort of have this image in my head that while we got a lot of, like, foodstuffs from the, the Native Americans and American Indians, like squash and potatoes and corn, like, I always sort of had this idea in my head that we sort of used them in our own way, but that's that's not as true as I thought it was. Like, a lot of American foods, like, have a very straight line of descent, like, especially like basically anything that has corn flour in it like um hominy was completely invented by american indians what's hominy so aha that's an excellent question young max so hominy is uh when you take corn and you soak it in water in an alkaline solution which is usually derived from limestone when you're talking about not modern uh, not having mo- access to modern chemicals. And it, oh, I can't believe I'm going to say this word, engorges the corn. <laughs> nice. And <laughs> makes it, like, white, and then you... So this white engorged corn, what yes. does it do? Um, so you, you dry it out, and then you grind it into, into corn flour. And, like, I always had this idea that corn flour, oh, you just take the corn, and then you grind it, and it's corn flour. But no, like, in order to make corn flour, like, actually work, you have to put corn through this alkaline process so it's actually like more complicated than a lot of people realize um and then like if you look at a lot of the foods that we eat that are made out of corn flour like cornbread 
and Hush Puppies and like um Johnny Cakes, like like it's basically it's a version of um of pancakes. Like those are all made but of made of ju- made made in a Johnny instead of made in a pan. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, exactly. Just Max. find your nearest That's Johnny exactly and just it. just step on their foot so they open up their mouth like in a cartoon and just pour some corn flour down there. And exactly. you got, got Johnny cakes. Absolutely. That's ex- everything you said is totally correct. You take a Johnny, put a cake in him. You like yes. pancakes, but because pancakes are called pancakes because they're made in a pan. So what? what so explain to me, Flapjack Smacks. Well, you have to find a guy named Jack. Uh huh. Keep going. And uh, put him under his armpits. Put the meal, the corn, and flour, and the and the uh-huh. the, 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 uh-huh. the 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 batter under his armpits, uh-huh. and then tickle him a lot so he flaps his arms up and down. See, I was thinking that you probably had to like tie him to something and then like flap him up and down. Well, you're the one who who's researched this, not me. Yeah, no, I think you are really mistaken on the flapjack process. Mm, well, prove me wrong. Okay, so you take the John. Or the jack, I'm sorry. <laughs> Easily made mistake. Tie him to a chair, and then you tick... Oh, wait, no, that is what you said. Damn it. Yeah, you just gotta tickle him. It's all about those sweet tickles. Uh, moving on. <laughs> so, yeah. So, Johnny... K- I, I, they're usually made of wheat now, I think. Uh, I don't know. In, in the north, we may have pancakes, and pancakes are always made of wheat flour, but I'm not sure if they might eat a corn flour-based variant down south. But the Native Americans almost definitely ate them with corn flour. Um, And then there's some other, like, um, foods that the American Indians... This is mostly um, southeastern tribes, um, like the Powhatan, and sort of the same area. But, like, chitlins and... Oh, grits is another one. Like, all of those foods, they're all, like, American Indian foods. Um, But... Mostly what I'm talking about today is not even just foods that come from um, American Indian tribes, though most of these do, but foods that, like, are not much eaten anymore, or if they are eaten, are um, kind of unknown. So, um, the first of these foods is fiddleheads, which are eaten a lot where I'm from in Vermont, and um, a little bit north of there in Canada, and... uh, those have been eaten, well, in Europe since the Middle Ages, and then obviously the American Indians, and they were um, a popular foraged food in the United States. And you'd go out in the springtime, and the ostrich fern, before the fronds unfurl, they're these little, like, button, um, whirl-shaped sprouts, and you'd cut them off and boil them. Um, let me just say that I've harvested fiddleheads and eaten them back in my home area, Uh do make sure you boil the fiddleheads first. <laughs> My family once chose to eat them. Did not know this. There was the projectile vomit was a thing that happened that night. Yeah. Yeah. So make sure to boil your fiddleheads because otherwise you will poison yourself. The water actually turns like black when you do that too. Because that's all the evil coming out. All the evil that's comes the, out in the in, pot. Inside every fiddlehead, uh-huh. there's a little bit of Satan. And when, That's you, right. when you boil it, the Satan leaves because it's not comfortable for so it. So you know that song, The Devil Went Down to Georgia, and he plays fiddle with the devil? I think I've... We've cracked the code. Yeah, it's mm. because somehow fiddleheads. So you're, what? So let me, let me see if I understand what you're uh-huh. saying here. The Devil Went Down to Georgia is a long-coded entreaty to tell the common people that 
they shouldn't eat fiddleheads, because otherwise they're eating little bits of Satan. It's a, it's a parable, if you will. Johnny, in this case, is a Johnny cake maker yes. who... Uh, who wanted to eat fresh, delicious fiddleheads, right, but right. and but he he made had to make sure to cook them first, as is sort of seen through the red hot fiddling uh, that goes on in the song. I think I mean I'm ashamed to say, as someone who likes folk music, but I think you have described the plot of the song more than I actually know. So I win. <laughs> That's right. This is a game, and you've won all the points, Max. Congratulations. You get to go home. Ah, oh, sweet. Well, enjoy doing the rest of the podcast without me. Oh. oh. Um, another food that comes out in springtime and uh, is eaten around the same time is ramps. Uh, ramps are these little flat-leafed onions, um, and they are sort of like a cross between a scallion and garlic. Um, the Maliseet and Micmac and Penobscot Indians all ate those, as well as people further south. Back in my hometown... There's a river called Winooski, which literally means, like, onion um, from ramps. And, um... How did it get that name? Because a lot of ramps grew on the banks of the river. And it's... And Winooski is a... What, uh... What tribe word? I think it's, um... I think it's Abnaki or, uh... Hadosani, which is the proper name for the Iroquois. But I'm not totally sure. Because Vermont, well, what I learned in school, which may or may not be true, but Vermont was um, variously settled by the Haudenosaunee and the Abnaki, and they'd kind of pick at each other a lot in that area. So it's 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 not necessarily clear like who was where, but I'm sure it comes from the language of one of those two tribes. Okay. Yeah. Um, and ramps uh, are eaten a lot these days by the Appalachians um, and they sort of got a reputation for having kind of a a janky smell Um, one dude even actually um, ground them up and put them in the ink for uh, his newspaper as like kind of a prank Uh, and they've also been used as like a wait 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 back up here okay back up you you're burying the lead here a dude ground up onions and put them in his newspaper ink jim comstock editor and co-owner of the richwood news leader introduced ramp juice into the printer's ink of one issue as a practical joke so i guess i guess the the postmaster general i guess the practical joke was i don't want people to buy my newspaper ever again (laughs) i've always wanted to be homeless Time to practical joke myself out of a job and everyone who works for me. Because no one's going to want my newspaper now because it smells like gross old onion farts. You know, now that you mention it, that's a good point, Max. But, you know, anything for a goof. You you of all people should know that, right? I mean, yeah, but I feel like the line is where it endangers yours and other people's livelihoods and makes everyone's hands smell like onion farts. It's like, oh, hey, you, you want to buy? I want you to buy my product, but oh, be careful, because maybe it'll make your whole house stink like an old man's creepy armpit smell. <laughs> That's so evocatively specific, Max. You know, comedies and specifics, Kate. Also gross. <laughs> I oh, that old man mental image is just. Mm, I'm uncomfortable now. Uh, yeah. Yeah, just like every subscriber to that man's newspaper. Because they open up their newspaper, like, thinking, oh, I'll read Peanuts. And you know what they got? 
Well, they did get to read Peanuts, but they got to read Peanuts Actually, as though they were cradled in Gramp Gramp's awful, oh, awful, no. gross armpit. His sweaty pits. Gramp Gramp's deodorant for when you want to make children never come near you again. Um, yes, Ramps. So Ramps kind of acquired this reputation as being like filthy peasant food from the sticks. And uh, recently... Um, they've become considered a delicacy, like, not just among, you know, people who forage for food because they need to, but among, like, restaurateurs, so you, you the price has really gone up a lot, and, uh, they've had to actually, like, start having quotas and things so people don't over-harvest them. Um, despite their reputation for smelling terrible, I think, I mean, at least in terms of taste, I think they're fantastic. Like, Generally, the rule of thumb is the smellier something is, the better it tastes. That's definitely 100% true all of the time. The rule of thumb. That's why everyone loves rotting meat. Although I say that, but aged beef is like a thing. It's a thing, Kate. Yeah, I never, aged like... Aged beef is a thing. Yeah. Generally, the stinkier something's awful is, the more delicious it will be. But what if, like, what if it's, like rotting though like that's different i mean like there's a there's a difference between like it's fresh and it smells bad and like it's gone off and it smells bad okay that's fair that's fair that's fair yeah but yeah they taste fantastic there's like a cross between scallions and garlic which are like two of the best things Mm -hmm. so one time i made uh, a quiche out of um fiddleheads and ramps and bacon and i think it was still it's one of the best things i've ever cooked Right on. It was very, very good. Yeah. Let's hear some more uh, history stories about some food. Yeah, so um, that's not all of the foods that we've forgotten. Um, so one of my favorite things is um, pawpaws. So pawpaws are this tropical fruit that grows mostly in the um, southeastern United States, but, like, technically it can grow just about anywhere on the East Coast. And it has, like, these green-shaped pods, and I haven't had one. I've, if anyone has a pod uh, who's listening to this podcast, please send me one. I really want to know what they taste like, but... It's kind of like a cross between a mango and a banana. It's illegal to send fruit through the U.S. Postal Service. Oh. You just solicited a crime. Look, if anyone has a pawpaw, definitely don't ever send me one wink. Okay, I think I think we're covered. So um, some uh, high rollers like uh, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington both grew them in their backyard and they were like a staple of american foodstuffs for like hundreds of years and used to make like custards and pies and then they just sort of disappeared like you can still find them like they still grow wild and there's been um a few attempts to reintroduce them but it it's kind of a slow process so Thomas Jefferson grew them and was oh, yeah. able to cultivate them, but yeah. we aren't able to today. There's some been some attempts to make them more like mass marketable, but the thing is you can't you can't ship them. Like they won't ripen properly. Okay, you so you've asked them. someone to both illegally ship us a fruit, like what's well, not not possible to ship us. They could can it or freeze it. So you want them to send a frozen fruit through the mail. I guess they send steaks through the mail. That could work. Yeah. I could make it work. Why do you have to crush all of my dreams, Max? My dreams of obscure, random foodstuffs that no one's heard of. Kate, I don't mean to crush your dreams. I just... Somebody's got to look out for us. I don't want to go to jail. I'm too pretty. You are very pretty. Thank you. 
Anyway, the last thing is turtle soup. A totally ordinary, normal thing that people definitely eat. People don't eat turtle soup anymore. But it's made of delicious turtles. It is made of delicious turtles. One of nature's most adorable animals. That's right. I mean, I've definitely read about turtle soup in my fantasy novels. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to tell you a bit about turtle soup, and we'll circle back with some of the other things a bit. So turtle soup was widely, widely eaten in the United States until the turn of the 20th century. And, like, when I mean widely eaten, like, it was on everyone's table from, like, the poorest peasant to, we're going to serve turtle soup at the presidential inauguration party. Like, everyone was eating this stuff. Um, And it was made in um, a base of, like, tomatoes, and I think there was uh, a lot of beans in it as well. And you would, like, have all these different parts of the turtle, and they said there was a different part of the turtle for every animal. Like, there's a part that tasted like rabbit and a part that tasted like cow. Do people just think that the turtle was some sort of unholy chimera, some sort of Frankenstein of other animals that have been stitched together to make a, a just a wrinkly green old old man looking little reptile with well, a shell it's, it's actually interesting that you say that max you've reminded me of something um there is like kind of an old folk legend that uh after god was finished making all of the other animals he just sort of threw them together in a pot and made it into a turtle and that's why they taste like so many different animals <laughs> I do love the old lazy god hypothesis. That's similar. Th- there's a similar legend behind the platypus. Uh, it's. A, I mean, it's a classic for a reason, Max. Mm-hmm. Um. So there's two reasons why turtle soup probably fell out of favor, and I will go over both of them. But the first reason is that. Um, It used to be that when you were getting water for your house, you would go out to the stream or the well or whatever. And this may shock you, but turtles like to be in wet places. No. And the the type of turtle that was most often eaten was snapping turtle, which are horrifying. Never go out and find a snapping turtle unless you know what you're doing. They can bite your finger off. I mean, they are called snapping turtles. They're called snapping turtles. I feel like like there's a warning there. Yeah, there's a. The warning, and the warning is that they're terrifying. I mean, they're not like they're not like about jazz snaps. They don't go to poetry readings and applaud with polite snaps. Yeah, then they'd be beatnik turtles with little turtlenecks, little beat in like a beret. Oh man, that's a very cute mental image. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, beatnik turtles. I love you. So you were saying? Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, people would go out to sources of water, and um, back in the day, like, you took food where you could find it. And so people would forage them and use them to make soup, because turtles are great for making soup, because they have, like, a huge amount of bone mass to them. Um, The other reason that they fell out of favor is the same reason that uh, all of these foods fell out of favor, from fiddleheads to rams to pawpaws to turtles, is that um, at the turn of the 19th century... What we decided to do um, during 1920s especially is move away from uh, foods that are made on an individual basis or in small farms or foraged or hunted, and we wanted to make our food as mass-produced as possible. Turtles actually held on a little longer. They got as far as, like, canning. Like, you could buy, like, Campbell's turtle soup for a little while in, like, the late 19th century, I think, but... Like, with all of these foods, it's just easier to pick an animal, 
preferably one that you can fatten up and um, farm easily and then just stick to that animal. So now everybody's eating chicken, everybody's eating cow, beef, I should say, everybody's eating pork. It's a lot more of a pain to like harvest like ramps which grow in the woods or fiddleheads or like pawpaws were kind of like early bananas now where like the seeds take up a lot of volume in the fruit and you can't ship them and like you can only can them and freeze them and people didn't have many freezers back then so like all these foods just kind of got thrown to the wayside because you know if you're trying to mass produce foods especially during world war one like you don't want to fuss around with that stuff you want to do it henry ford style and just send it through a conveyor belt so that's a lot of the reason that these foods have kind of fallen into obscurity so take that it was historical the whole time uh so if you uh were to have a historical dinner uh what would you what would you want to cook what would like say say you were cooking for somebody from the uh uh late 1800s uh what, what what would you cook and why um the world's my oyster um i guess like if you were doing the late 1800s i would cook like a lot of uh foods we probably don't eat anymore or oh you know what i would do is i would cook a game bird like a pheasant which few people eat anymore because they're pretty much impossible to farm and you have to go out and hunt one yourself so I cook a pheasant, and then I stuff it with American chestnut filling, a tree that is extinct, and then I'd serve it with ramps in the stuffing and fill heads on the side, and, you know, like some gravy probably, and maybe squirrel soup to start, which is another thing people don't eat much anymore, but I couldn't find any information about it, so. Okay, yeah. So just a, a real game casserole. Yes, a delightful gamey gamey casserole mm, i don't like the lip smacking sounds mm, and mm, neither mm. Will, our, will our listeners no <laughs> Ugh. well gross i mean you'd probably at least like the stuffing though i yeah, everyone likes stuffing kate that's just let's just that's just a fact oh and i'd use cornmeal in the stuffing too make it extra american well you'd need something to wash all of that delicious game down mm. and what you might want to reach for is a beer maybe a beer of revenge so uh with the invention of the microscopes or to be more accurate the ability to make good quality microscopes around the end of the 19th century because microscopes have sort of been around since around the 1600s just our ability to make lenses to make good quality microscopes really only caught up around the late 1800s. So if you were looking through a microscope in the 1600s, you just kind of see a big, blurry, gamey mess. Yeah, well, you'd see, yeah, you'd see a, a, a large but blurry, basically. It wasn't very useful for looking at microorganisms, but you could, you could sort of get like a, sort of a larger, blurrier look at things. Um, so, uh... A lot of things change because we could look now in good quality at uh, at microorganisms, at uh, fingerprints, at all sorts of tiny shit. Yeah, now we could look in a microscope at like our spit and be like, what the fuck is in my spit? What is in my spit? Have those been living there the entire time? Oh my god, I hate my body. You know, there's actually a bit in Gulliver's Travels where... Uh, uh, Gulliver meets the Lapitans, who are a, a race of just scientific people who can't do 
anything that is like normal in society because they're always looking down microscopes or up at telescopes. They also have a thing where they have little servants that go around who like hit them with bladders when they're not paying enough attention to things. I, I remember that. Yeah. Oh, oh Gulliver's Travels. Apparently we've both read Gulliver's Travels. Something that surprisingly few people have done. Uh, but I mean, maybe there's a reason for that, actually. Well, it's a crazy satire of eight, of 19th century society, which isn't as relevant today. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Louis Pasteur, who you may know from uh, making milk safe, uh, probably made the most of the new technology. As I said, he made milk safe. He uh, solved the mysteries of anthrax, rabies, chicken cholera, uh, silk, many silkworm diseases, and he contributed to the first vaccines. Um, he also debunked the idea of spontaneous generation, uh, that living organisms could just appear from nothing. Um, uh, and out of patriotism and revenge, he revolutionized our understanding of fermentation. It's that last wish, one we're going to talk about today. I wish someone could spontaneously generate me a papa. Baby, Louis Pasteur dashed those hopes a long time ago. <laughs> Louis, why are you going to do me like that? Louis, Louis. Oh, oh. <laughs> uh, so you, so, um, so the reason for his want, which want for uh, revenge is thus. So you, you probably know about the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. Everyone knows about it. So, yeah, in case you uh, didn't cover that in your history class or need a refresher, uh, here's the thousand-yard view. Basically, uh, Napoleon III picked what he thought was going to be a really easy fight with the German state of Prussia, uh, so as to increase his popularity at home in France. Uh, unfortunately for Napoleon, uh, Otto von Bismarck, the Prussian chancellor, formed a coalition of German states, which coincidentally led to the creation of Germany as we know it today, uh, and inflicted a painful and humiliating defeat on France, which led to the end of French hegemony in a continental Europe. Which led to the end of French hegemony in continental Europe. Not a continental Europe. There's only one. A thing that I definitely understand about France and hegemony. Hege, hege, hegemony. 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 Yeah. Hegemony. What about it? I don't know what it, I don't know what you're talking Like dominance. Uh, yeah. Hold on. Let's 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 go to Gujal to find to get the exact definition of hegemony. You just read that in a book and then and then put it in there, didn't you? Um, I didn't just read it in a book. So, uh, yeah, hegemony is dominance of one group or nation okay, over okay, others. Okay. Yeah. So nobody had Napoleon fever anymore. No, no, Napoleon fever was relegated, much like disco fever today is, to the past, and rightfully so. Yeah. We I, apologies to disco fans who listen to our podcast, but. Considering our subscriber numbers, I'd be amazed if there are any who listen to, to us. To be perfectly honest, I think that Disco is better than Napoleon, so I mean, take comfort in that. Disco certainly killed fewer people. Way fewer people. Uh, and made people dress a lot less embarrassingly. So uh, Pasteur, a patriotic Frenchman, decided to get revenge on his country's behalf. He decided to hit the newly unified Germany where it hurt. In the beer. So German beers had, by this point, long been seen as superior to those crafted by the rest of Europe, and as such made up a major component of the German economy. Pasteur, from his study of microorganisms, suspected he understood why this was. 
so the methods of fermentation weren't always as well understood as they are today. Uh, even beer-brewing monks, who spent a large amount of their life devoted to brewing ale, attributed the factor that transformed barley, hops, water, malt, and yeast into beer as being attributed to a mysterious force that they called God is good. All one word. God is good. Like someone's Wi-Fi password. <laughs> Let's see. We got God is good. We got gamey casserole. Sometimes when you look at Wi-Fi passwords, you learn a whole story about someone. Yeah. I really feel like uh, people listening to this uh, podcast could probably hack into someone's Wi-Fi pretty Especially easily Especially someone like Wi-Fi that was named God is Good because, you know, that's like your super religious aunt who made her son change it to that. Mm. And, you know. And uh, the password is just 666, the number of the beast. That's right. Um, yeah. Gotta rebel somehow. That's right. In any little way that you know how. Mm -hmm. Even if it's just your Wi-Fi password. Mm -hmm. Where was I? So as a result of this lack of knowledge, a lot of beer was unreliable in quality, flavor, and sometimes even just drinkability. Uh, For most of history, brewing was a process of trial and error. If you've ever brewed your own beer at home or fermented anything, you know how important it is to sterilize it. To sterilize your equipment before brewing. Because otherwise you can end up with a goopy brown mess get some janky pickles oh some really bad pickles some real janky janky pickles yeah because the same thing the same elements that are good good uh circumstances for fermentation are also just a bacteria party yeah so in august of 1871 pasteur went to london to the whitbread brewery which is one of was one of the largest and most successful breweries of the time And he basically badgered them into buying him a microscope and letting him look at their still-brewing beer through it. You know, my favorite part of this story isn't the barging in to look at the beer, which is weird enough. Like, I can just imagine him barging and being like, let me look at your beer. And just being like, is is that like a a sex thing, Louis? Maybe. I don't want to be judged. Let me look at your beer. And then, like, the 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 weirder part past that, past the questioning Louis Pasteur's sexual proclivities, is now pay for my microscope. After my mysterious, totally unexplained request, I want you to facilitate my weird beer peeping with the purchase of a microscope. It was a real power move, yeah. gotta say. Like, why did they ever agree to this? Did he, like, you know, show a little skin or just, like, threaten them? With... You don't say no to Louis Pasteur, the man who cured anthrax. He could probably throw anthrax at you. Yeah, I just get, like, if you say, like, no, I'll never agree to your terms, Louis Pasteur. I'm not a man who will be threatened. He'll be like, that's right, that's cool, that's cool, I totally understand. They'll hand you a present. He'll be like, here, accept this as my apology. For my cruel and extremely ill-advised behavior. And you open it and it's just full of uh, spring-loaded snakes. And the snakes are all dusted in anthrax. That's right. And then the next time we go to another beer brewer and you're like, give me the beer, give me the microscope. They're like, anything you say, Louis. (laughs) Just don't don't give us a present. Just don't give us the snakes. We'll be honored bound to open it and we know it's science. (laughs) Um, We have to. I mean, more likely he wrote like uh, some letters or something. He uh, probably corresponded with them, but, uh... He was probably like, 
Hey, I'm Louis Pasteur. You might not have heard of me, but I'm kind of a big deal. More, probably more of a, do you want to make better beer than anyone else? Well, work with me with Bread Brewery, or I'll go to another brewery. Uh, you know, the old the old competition. Um, so, from his study, Pasteur was able to find that when the brewery had a bad brew, it was due to the yeast becoming infected by competing strains of yeast or by other microorganisms. Uh, he returned to France with that knowledge and published his findings in 1876 as, I'm going to butcher this, uh, Etudes sur de la bière, or Studies on Beer, which was quickly translated by most major brewers, uh, except by Pasteur's insistence into German. He required that none of his research be shared with Germany, and that any beers developed based on his research be called Beers de la Refrange Nationale, or... Beers of the National Revenge. The funny thing is, they thought it was because of revenge reasons, but it was really about, is he knew the Germans would just be, like, really, really grossed out mm. by hearing about competing strains of yeast. <laughs> They're such a fastidious people. Yeah, so in the, in the end, it was, it was really quite sensitive of him to think about them. Like, to, a, to the Germans in historic mm. Prussia, it wasn't worth the possibility of making better beer if it meant learning about gross yeast. If they started reading that pamphlet, one of them would yarts. And then another German would see them yarts, and uh-huh. they would start yartsing. And then that German would get seen by a third German, and then we just have a yarts conga all the way around the German border until it was just a whole tidal wave of yarts washing Germany out to sea. Much like the pastry of the Bismarck, Germany would become filled with a... You know, I'm, I'm going to stop that there. I've... Filled with yarts? Yeah. <laughs> Filled with a gooey, creamy... Mm, no bueno. Oh. You thought about people throwing up a creamy, gooey mm, substance, didn't you? No, like, stop. No, bad. Aw. You did this to yourself, Kate. I, I, I did it all for the goofs. For you, baby. Those, for you those the sweet, goofs. Those sweet goop goofs. Mm. Yeah. Let's wash away that flavor of that goop idea. And let's actually look at two of these revenge beers. Uh, So, in 1846, Jacob Christian Jacobson traveled from his home in the city of Denmark to steal and bring home two quarts of Bavarian yeast, which were said to be the best in the world, which was responsible for the trademark Bavarian Pilsner. This was before refrigerated vans, so Jacob had to stop his coach constantly to cool the yeast off in water so that it wouldn't spoil. Uh, so he was just in this coach with a bucket of yeast, and every time he saw a river, he had to get out and just dunk the yeast in water for a while. Live, my pretties, live! So it took him, like, six or seven times as long to get home as it took him to get to Bavaria. And as for actually, like, stealing the yeast, I like to imagine he just broke in one night into a into a brewery, and just, with a bucket in his hand, and just scurried out the back door into his coach, and then had to stop immediately to cool down the yeast again. <laughs> So, You'll come home with me, my pretties, at any cost. <laughs> so he Sorry. he got it back to his brewery in Denmark and had one of his scientists, Emil Hansen, study it. In 1883, almost 40 years later, Emil used Pasteur's methods to isolate the Pilsner strain of yeast, which, since yeast are, yeasts are single-cell organisms, allowed it to be cloned. By carefully isolating this strain in laboratory conditions, and also the beer in which it was brewed, Jacob and Emil were able to guarantee that their beer, Carlsberg, 
would taste the same in every batch. There's something a little sad about that, though. Oh, yes. Uh, And we'll get to that in a minute. (laughs) Our other beer came from Holland, where Gerard Adrian Heineken lived. Yes, that Heineken. That guy. In 1863, Gerard bought the Amsterdam Haystack Brewery with a vow that he would save the people of the city from inferior beer. <laughs> a very ironic vow. Oh, yeah. doofa doofa. So he visited Germany, hired a German master brewer, and established the world's first private brewing laboratory in order to perfect his recipe. I'm and sorry, they're process. private brewing what? Laboratory. It's One more. Laboratory. <laughs> That's, people usually, that's right, baby. Laboratory. (laughs) Uh, So, he uh, established the world's first private brewing laboratory, and in 1886, Dr. Elion, who studied under Pasteur, also isolated a yeast strain from which they were able to culture a pure strain, the Heineken A-yeast. So, Heineken and Carlsberg both got their start due to Pasteur's methods. And you can actually still drink these two beers of the National Revenge today. Uh, The direct descendants of both of these strains of yeast are still being used by Carlsberg and Heineken today, cloned year after year from those first isolated cultures. So, it's a little sad that they aren't better than they are. Yeah. Uh, I have a lot of opinions about beer. Yours may differ. You know, if you like Heineken and Carlsberg, power to you. I think they taste like piss. Um, I am still an infant on my beer journey, but of the domestic beers I have had, I think Heineken might be my least favorite. Uh, You know, it's appropriate that Heineken and Carlsberg, though, do taste best ice cold because they are... Revenge beers. And as we all know, revenge is a beer best served cold. Um, If you had to... So if you went back in time and you could stop either Carlsberg or Heineken from making the... Carlsberg. I would shoot Carlsberg in the head. Okay, whoa. (laughs) Ice ice cold. It's also like a lot of the... It would be interesting to see the ripples that happen in history, too, because Carlsberg is now the, like, bros beer of choice in a lot of Europe and a lot and in England. And uh, a lot of Carlsberg marketing has done a lot to unseat British ale, uh, which is holds a special place in my part. In, in your my, part? Yeah, in my part. In my part heart. In my half heart that I traded away because I love beer too much. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Carlsberg entirely. I it's also this. also it tastes it tastes terrible. Heineken at least has like a sort of a sweetness to it. Car- Carlsberg, I just it tastes like fizzy yellow liquid. I love how like I didn't even it tastes like you put a crayon in 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 yeast. Sorry, what were you saying? A yellow crayon. I love I love how I didn't get even as far as completing the question and like Carlsberg, Carlsberg. Oh, I've dreamed of that I w- day. I would go back in time and. Kill Jacob Christian Jacobson with a shovel. Whoa, that's so, so specific. Yeah. Well, you know what? Actually, I respect him for stealing that Bavarian yeast. 
but none, nonetheless. I love, I love how the thing you respect him for is not, like, pioneering a method of beer production. It's the stealing the yeast part. The best thing he ever did was a crime. I mean, you could say that about the beer he made. Oh. Also, I love how, like, you're... So, here's another question as a corollary to the first question. If you could go back in time and shoot the creators of PBR and Natty Ice. Natty Ice. Natty Ice was a naked cash grab. PBR actually did win a blue ribbon at a uh, county fair, and that's why it's called Paps Blue Ribbon. I actually think it's a very, like, not good, but it's a drinkable beer. Yeah, no, I, I've got no I've got no qualms with PBR. Natty Ice is, uh, is just a... Uh, Naked shitty cash grab of ice beer, which was developed to have the least flavor possible. What? Is that for real? That's for realsies. Dang. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. that That's that's my story. Uh, we've got just enough time for a quick round of What If They Met. What? what if, oh, wait. No, you don't. I don't sing the song. You sing the song. Well, we could sing it together. Wait, how are we going to sing it together? Been... We'll, we'll listen to our hearts, Kate. Okay. What? what? If they met, what if they met? What if these two people from history had met? Met, 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 met. What if they met? What if they met? They never met. They never met. But if they met. But if they met, they would have met. And then we'd see what they had to say and do, and they would meet. If they met, but they didn't meet. But what if, what if they met? It's a nice uh, two-part harmony we got going on there. We're very talented, Kate. Sure. So, uh, what if, uh, what if Louis Pasteur... Had gotten his hands all stinky and oniony from that newspaper man's newspaper, because Louis Pasteur is obviously a vengeance-filled soul. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I wonder if he would introduce a terrible onion-based blight and try to destroy the ramp population in the United States the way the American chestnut. Okay. Okay. I think he wasn't as much of a... I, I, I see what you're saying. Like, he would have just engineered... Like, you'd taken anthrax, and he would have just, sh- like, taken a needle and just shot it into an onion, well, I mean, and then gotten really frustrated when it didn't work. Okay, first of all, that's hilarious. Yeah. Second of all, like, it wouldn't have to be that complicated. He could introduce, like, a, a pest of British onions or a mold or something. I but... think what he would have done is he would have... Uh, examined what makes newspapers successful or unsuccessful, oh, that, yeah. and then published newspapers of Louis Pasteur's revenge. Okay, wait, I have another thought. Maybe he'd engineer an ink that just dissolves and reshuffles itself to say, uh, fuck you, uh, Jim Con. So, um, Jim Corn- Comstock every time. Just reshuffle into fuck you, Jim Comstock. So, so why wouldn't he just print fuck you, Jim Comstock over and over? Because he's Louis, pa- Louis Pasteur. He's not going to half-ass his revenge. I just, I feel like... It's a chumpskin. After a certain point, you're just printing the same words over and over. Okay, okay, I have an... So, he sends a wrapped present to Jim Comstock. Okay. And then Jim Comstock opens that present, mm-hmm. and then... Anthrax flies out at him, and 
a happy birthday note rearranges itself into fuck you, Jim Comstock. Brutal. Yeah. Absolutely brutal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah what yeah. if he just sent him a box full of just German person yarts? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And a little, a little written description of how the yarts came to be. And That's then, why you don't cross me, Jim. Don't you cross me, Jim. And then Jim starts yartsin, and then the people at his paper start yartsin, and they make that yarts into smelly, stinky ink. <laughs> they send that, send a newspaper straight to Louis Pasteur, and Louis Pasteur is like, hoist by my own pastard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a slow-release pun that you need to have a lot of prior knowledge for. A lot of prior knowledge. A lot. A lot of Okay, so what if Thomas Jefferson came to Louis Pasteur and asked him to engineer a more edible version of the pawpaw? Uh, Louis Pasteur would probably say, I'm not that kind of scientist. If I can look at a pawpaw under a microscope, I, yeah, sure, totally. I would totally do it. But what if Thomas Jefferson looked at him real sad and held him just like, pawpaw? Bring me a tiny pawpaw and I'll look at it. Look at tiny pawpaw. Here's my tiniest pawpaw, Louis. Just I found come out that I found out that this pawpaw is adorable. <laughs> come on, make me make me some pawpaw. Make come pawpaw. I'll call you pawpaw. I would not. I do not want you to come on pawpaw. No, please pawpaw. do not come. Make not, me some pawpaw. No, I'm not going to. Just a little pawpaw. Make the little pawpaw better. Just breed up that pawpaw. Come on, make up a, gen- a genetic cloning program from a pawpaw. Fine, buy me a new microscope, and maybe if you sweeten the deal. Okay, I'm Thomas Jefferson. I have all kinds of science jokes. That's right, around. you buy me a new microscope, because I'm worth it. <laughs> I Louis Pasteur am worth a new microscope. I bet to see a microscope on this finger, Jefferson. <laughs> oh, anything for you, my little papa. I definitely am not seeing anyone else on the slide. Are you seeing Liberty? <laughs> No, 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 I would never. I'd never betray you, Louis. Are you seeing Benjamin Franklin, that slut? <laughs> I know because he's also seeing me. <laughs> uh, that's going to do it for us this week here on Anachronismo. Anachronismo. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks' time with a full-length episode, hopefully. Um if you uh, if you like our show, follow us on Twitter. We're at Anac Podcast. That's A N A C Podcast. You can email us at itsanachronismo at gmail dot com. Uh, please, if you got a chance, uh, leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or your podcast uh, supplier of choice. It really helps us uh, find new listeners, uh, and it would mean it would just make our day. If you, anytime we see a new one up there, um, uh, yeah, and uh, feel free to tweet at us with. Uh, uh, your favorite historical stories or goofs or what have you. Um, yeah. Let's see here. Is there anything else? Anything you want to plug, Boo? Um, you can check out my Twitter account if you want. It's K-R-I-K-R-I-T underscore T. Um, it is full of left politics, so if that is not your scene, like, just be aware. But mm-hmm. if that is your scene, you might really dig it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, great. Well, thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next week here on Anachronismo. Anachronismo.